Welcome to the Spark Youth Podcast. Spark is the youth ministry of the Enfield and Strathfield Anglican Church. Our mission is to gather to hear God's word, to grow in Christ's likeness, and to go in prayerful proclamation. To find out more about us, you can go to our website at fields.org.au forward slash spark, or you can find us on our Instagram page at instagram.com forward slash youth underscore of underscore spark. Hell is not a popular subject for Christians and non-Christians alike. For over 2,000 years, the mainstream Christian church has affirmed the Bible's teaching of eternal punishment in hell. But in the last 60 years, a significant shift has occurred in belief. Our culture has no problem with a God of love who supports us no matter how we live. However, it objects strongly to the idea of a God who punishes people for their sincerely held beliefs, even if they are mistaken. People today consider tolerance the most important thing, and the idea that a loving God could punish someone eternally seems extremely intolerant and unloving. A very common question is, how can a loving God condemn people to hell? A friend of mine said, If God tortured the wicked in a fiery horror chamber throughout eternity, he would be more vicious and heartless than men have been in the worst war. He would be worse than Stalin and Hitler put together. Someone else said that only God, the only God that is believable to me is a God of love. The Bible's God is no more than a primitive deity who must be appeased with pain and suffering. The first thing we need to ask ourselves is, could culture be influencing our objection to hell? For starters, are you offended by the idea of a forgiving God? Now, most listening today would be surprised by this question, but why aren't you offended? Westerners get upset by the Christian doctrine of hell, but they find biblical teaching about running, turning the other cheek and forgiving enemies appealing. However, in traditional societies, the teaching about turning the other cheek makes absolutely no sense. It offends people's deepest instincts about what is right. For them, the doctrine of a God of judgment, however, is no problem at all. Why should our Western cultural values be the final court on which to judge whether Christianity is valid or not? If what the Bible says isn't a product of culture, but is truly God's word, then Tim Keller, author of The Reason for God, says that you would expect that it would contradict and offend every human culture at some point because human cultures are ever-changing and imperfect. If Christianity is the truth, it would have to be offending and correcting your thinking at some place. Maybe this is the place, the teaching about hell. And the first thing I wanted to say is only Jesus can answer our questions about hell. Jesus died, experienced hell, and rose again. So no one is in a greater position to talk about hell than Jesus. For Jesus, hell was a very important topic, so much so that much of the information that we have about it came from him. So let's suspend our objection for a moment and consider what Jesus says about hell. In Luke 16, Jesus tells a parable, a story. In verses 19 to 21, we meet two men. The first name is Lazarus, and he was poor. The second is a rich man 
who had much wealth and was greedy. He didn't share wealth with Lazarus, and so, to survive, Lazarus ate what fell from the rich man's table. Furthermore, the rich man never gave anything to help heal Lazarus's sores. Then in verses 22 to 24, the rich man goes to hell, where Lazarus, the poor man, goes to heaven, where he is comforted and experiences the joy of a great banquet of food in heaven. And what we learn firstly is that hell is a real place. Hell is a real place. Some Christians believe in something called universalism. Universalism, where every person will ultimately be saved. Others believe in something called annihilationism. Annihilationism, where non-Christians cease to exist after they die. Now, Jesus talks about hell more than anyone else in the Bible talks about hell. Something like 12 times. The word hell comes from a Hebrew word that was used for a valley outside Jerusalem, which was one of once a site of human sacrifice by fire to a false god called Moloch, which became a dumping ground for, for filth and the corpses of criminals which were set on fire. In Matthew 25, 46, he uses this word to describe a place of everlasting punishment. In Matthew 24, 51, Jesus describes it as a place of great sorrow and anger where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And in Luke 3, 17, he says it is a place of unquenchable fire. And here in Luke 16, in verse 23, we see that the rich man goes to a physical place called hell. And what we learn is that hell is a painful place. So hell is a real place. Hell is a painful place. In hell, the rich man is in excruciating pain. He does not cease to exist as the annihilationists teach. He is conscious. So much so that he asks Abraham in verse 24, who is in heaven, to send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool his tongue. For he says, I am in anguish in this flame. No wonder Jesus says it is better for us to pluck out an eye or to remove a foot than to feel the pain of the unquenchable fire of hell. Furthermore, There is no possibility for him to be saved, as the universalists teach. But in verse 26, Abraham replies, Between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. In other words, there are no second chances after you die. Okay, so hell is a real place that is very painful. But what about our question? How can a loving God send people to hell? Well, there are three answers to this. Firstly, sin is worse than we think. Sin is worse than we think. It makes sense that there are no second chances after you die because the rich man is still just as selfish. He's still ordering Lazarus around. He wants him to bring him water to cool his tongue. And he will not accept responsibility for his sin. Rather, he essentially casts the blame onto God by implying that God did not give him enough information to escape hell. Hence, he goes on to ask God to send Lazarus to warn his friends. We see no sorrow for his wrongdoing, no desire to get right with God. As C.S. Lewis says, the, the famous author of Narnia, the doors of hell are locked from the inside. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, And those God says in the end, too, thy will be done.
In the rich man, we get a glimpse into why we are deserving of hell. For we share the same attitude as he does. Sin. Sin being self-centeredness and self-absorption. Me, me, me over you. Me rather than you. Such sin not only leads to rape and slavery and murder and every other evil, but it is ultimately against an infinitely good and worthy God who has given us everything for our good. Therefore, there are infinite consequences to offending and rejecting an infinitely worthy God who has given us everything for our enjoyment. That's how serious sin is. Sin is worse than we think. Secondly, hell means God will bring justice. All loving persons are sometimes filled with wrath, not just despite of, but because of their love. If you love a person and you see something ruining them, even themselves, you get angry. Anger is not the opposite of love. Indifference is. God's anger is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer, which is eating out the insides of the human race that he loves with his whole being. God's anger flows from his love. He is angry at evil and injustice because it is destroying us. Hell is good news because it means there will be justice. The source of the idea that God is love is the Bible itself. And the Bible tells us that the God of love is also a God of judgment who will put all things in the world to right in the end. If I don't believe that there is a God who will eventually put all things right, then all the evil acts of men go unpunished. And all the sacrifices of good men go unrewarded. If we desire something from someone, why not take it? If I am wronged, why not take up the sword and be sucked into an endless cycle of retaliation? And yet, do we really want a God who accepts everyone and judges no one where there's no justice? Think of all the evil that has been done in the world that would not be punished if hell did not exist. Richard Wormbrand, who has been tortured for his faith in a communist prison, says, The cruelty of atheism is hard to believe when man has no faith in the reward of good or the punishment of evil. There is no reason to be human. There is no restraint from the depth of evil which is in man. The communist tortures often said, There is no God, no hereafter, no punishment for evil. We can do what we wish. I have heard... Even one torture say, say, I thank God in whom I don't believe that I have lived to this hour when I can express all the evil that is in my heart. He expressed it in the unbelievable brutality and torture which he inflicted upon the prisoners. If God just turns a blind eye to all the evil that humans have done and simply forgives everyone, there will be no justice for all the evil that people have done. For example... Don Jemunjak was a Nazi who served as a guard in the concentration camps during the Second World War. He was involved in the murder of 28,000 Jews. He managed to flee Germany undetected and worked in America for 60 years. And yet he died in a nursing home, never facing justice. We long for a God who is both loving and just, who will bring judgment and make all things right. We all long for justice when the wrongs of this world against us and others will be punished. 
Think of the woman, the woman who is crying in court, demanding justice after her children have been murdered. So often people get away with their crimes. But only if I'm sure that there's a God who will right all the wrongs and settle all accounts perfectly, do I have the power to refrain from taking justice myself. And I can trust that justice will be done in the end. Hell means God will bring justice. Thirdly, hell enables us to know the depth of God's love. Imagine a friend of yours comes to visit you and you aren't home and then tells you, hey, I was at your house the other day and I saw one of your bills was due. You weren't around to pay it, so I paid it for you. How should you respond? Now, you have no idea how to respond until you know how much the bill was for. You shake your friend's hand or should you fall down on the ground and kiss their feet? And in a similar way, unless you believe in hell, you will never know how to understand how much Jesus loves you, how much he values you. On the cross, Jesus cried, Father, why have you forsaken me? Because he was experiencing hell. He was first given a crown of thorns, which was impressed into his skull. Then he was whipped with a cat of nine tails, where small pieces of metal or bone would have ripped the skin, revealing bones and organs. Then he was publicly shamed by being lifted up on a Roman cross, subjected to verbal abuse, spitting and rocks which were thrown at him. And then on the cross, nails were driven through his feet and his wrists, severing the medial nerve in his wrists. And eventually the weight of his body hanging from his wrists would have made it so painful and difficult to breathe that he died from no longer being able to lift himself up for another breath. But more than this, humiliating, lonely, shameful, agonizing torture, Jesus took the fire that fell down from heaven into his heart. When Jesus was separated from the Father's love on the cross, both Father and Son experienced the most unspeakable pain for our sake. Jesus experienced a disintegration and an isolation and a pain infinitely greater than you or I would ever experience spending an eternity in hell. Jesus took the isolation, the pain, the anger, we deserve on himself. The one who preached so much about hell, the one who sends people to hell, the one who punishes people in hell is the same one who went to hell because of his love for us. God's love has meant that he has done everything he could to save us from hell. Hell, in fact, shows us the depth of God's love as the son bore the full weight of hell as he absorbed the father's wrath on the cross. The extent to which you downplay the extent and punishment experienced in hell is the extent to which you downplay the love of God in Christ taking the full punishment of hell on the cross. Hell enables us to know the depth of God's love. So, how should we respond? If you're a Christian, firstly, we should be thankful that God has saved you from hell. Believers ought to be extra thankful when they comprehend the enormity of what they have been saved from. The fact that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus takes an even greater meaning when we consider the eternal consequences of that condemnation. Secondly, 
Preach the bad news so people appreciate the good news. Knowing what we have been saved from should motivate us to go and share the gospel. Knowing the horrific eternity people will experience if they don't turn to Jesus. And this should flow into how we share the gospel with people. The entire message of salvation depends upon the need to be saved from something. As one author, J.I. Packer, said, when the badness of the bad news about hell is unmuffled, the good news of the goodness of the good news about Christ and eternal life shine even brighter. A famous preacher called Charles Spurgeon once said, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled with the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. But what about if you're not someone who trusts in Jesus? Knowing that justice is coming means we should prepare ourselves for Jesus' return. We love to talk about justice when we're talking about other people, but we don't like talking about it when it comes to ourselves. God will bring justice for all the lies, for all the slander, for all the evil thoughts, all the bullying, all the selfishness that has come from our hearts. Will the justice fall upon you or will you trust in Jesus and allow him to take God's justice for you? Let me close with a story of a pioneer and his family making their way across a field. When they were horrified to see a long line of smoke, they soon realised that it was dry grass burning fiercely and coming toward them rapidly. They'd crossed a river the day before, but it would be impossible to go back to that before the flames would be upon them. So the father knew what to do. He gave the command to set fire to the grass behind them. Then when a space was burned over, the whole group moved back upon it. As the flames roared on towards them from the west, a little girl cried out in terror. Are you sure we shall not all be burned up? The father replied, my child. The flames cannot reach us here, for we are standing where the fire has been. The fires of God's judgment burn themselves out on Jesus, and all who trust in Jesus are safe forever, for they are now standing where the fire has been.